The following audio content is a talk from Tuesday Evening Worship, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash young adults. And we're going to take four things, and we looked at prosperity. Last week, we're going to look at dignity, hope, and then love in action as we head out across uh, Seattle on the, on the 16th of this month. Last week, Amber began by, by kind of tagging in with Thanksgiving and looking at prosperity and saying, you know, there is something that we can affirm. There is a perhaps a different prosperity, a prosperity that goes beyond simply what we have financially, the stuff that we accumulate and own, that there is a prosperity that actually comes out of simplicity, that somehow there is a simple life, a life that perhaps does not carry the anxieties that having lots of stuff sometimes brings with it, that there can be a great wealth and simplicity. And we looked at that last week. Well, this week we're going to be uh, looking at this idea of dignity and how dignity comes out of uh, our time in Advent. Well, as we begin tonight, I, I want to begin with a question. Maybe it's a, a metaphysical question. Maybe it's a question that it gets kind of deep. It could be difficult to answer, but essentially it's this. How do you know when you're finally an adult? I mean... When you know that you've actually grown up, that you're on your kind of you're on your own two feet, is when you you move out of mom and dad's house. Is it, is it when you finally walk away with your own credit card, five hundred dollar limit, and a T-shirt? Right? Now I'm an adult. I've made it. Is it when you have a a car that has more than two doors? I mean, that's what I'm holding on to. Right? Is it when you have a wagon? Is it when you get a minivan? Is it is it when you get married? Is it when you 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 own a house? Is it when you begin making more than simply the minimum wage? Is it when you can legally drink and legally vote? I mean, what is it? Is it when simply you feel like an adult? Is that when you're an adult? I mean, when do you, when do you truly know that you're an adult? Well, I'm just going to throw out kind of something from my own personal experience. I just sort of say, I would argue that you're an adult, that you have finally sort of made it into the adult world. You're a big boy. You're a big girl. When finally, Dilbert is funny. Right? <laughs> Not only is Dilbert funny, but somehow it carries kind of a deeper sense of meaning to it that you begin to look at it and go, hmm, yeah. Or you laugh sort of knowingly. Right, here's a Dilbert just pulled up from today. Carol, I want to take you, I want you to take any conference room chairs that are in the cubicles and put them back where they belong. People are going to steal the chairs back as soon as I leave them. Maybe, but doing it anyway. So, we're agreed that there's no way to tell if I really did it, right? Right? We begin to realize that this actually is not just a comic strip, but it kind of rings, it rings true that there's a, a sense of futility that we run into, right? We start out with great promise. You know, we, we graduate from high school and we're really excited. We go off to college and we got all kinds of hopes and dreams of what our degree is going to lead us into and we're going to change the world. And then pretty soon someone is asking us to take some chairs from one side of the room and move them to the other side of the room when we know they're just going to get moved back in a second and we're going, what in the world am I doing? What is this all about? I mean, I, I worked at a, an internet company for a while, and I, just re- I remember this distinctly. It's when Dilbert got really funny for me. Right? I clinged on to it in a way that perhaps was uh, unholy. Because there were these moments, I was at the bottom of the food chain in, in this company. And uh, I worked with the customers. It was kind of a customer service rep. And I, I had managers who were great friends and, and I re- deeply respected, but there were just things that came down kind of through management. A lot of times it's through these poor, these poor suckers who are just like, man, the little people are not going to like this, 
right? But they got to pass it on down middle managers. And there were just things where we're like, okay, we deal with the customers, we deal with kind of with, with the with those that subscribe to our service. And this thing that you're asking me to do, I'm going to have to clean up the mess of this next week, right? Do you really want us to do this? We're going to have a backlash on this. And it's, yes, we got to do this. We got to make our numbers. We got to do, and then pretty soon, a week later, we're calling up the same people that we said, hey, you got to do this. This is the newest, greatest thing. You got to buy into it. You got to go for it. And pretty soon, we're saying, really sorry about that. And you just get frustrated. You start to wonder, what in the world is going on? See, throughout our lives, we're going to hit these situations in which we wonder whether there is any dignity in what we do at all. Does this place matter? Does my life matter? Is there purpose in what I'm doing? Or am I simply running the treadmill, keeping some machine going? It comes especially in times like we're hitting now when, when we are getting stripped down. When we see this, especially in what is going on throughout our country, there's a, a stripping down, whether it is people who are having to tighten their belt financially or those who are losing their jobs, who have lost not only income but a sense of purpose, and you begin to ask the question, where's where's the dignity in all this? Where is the, the sense of reverence and respect that I had hoped to accomplish, the loftiness and, and grace that I, that I hope to, to live into? It, it feels like there is nothing there. Well, dignity is a funny word, isn't it? It's a word we don't use very often. It, it, it touches on that sense of, of grace or reverence. It's an idea that there is conduct. Uh, it is the way we carry ourselves in such a way that it indicates a self-respect or an appreciation for something greater, that, that what I'm doing matters and, I, and I'm acting like it actually matters. Well, we're going to look at this. As we look throughout our text tonight, we're going to fill that definition out and begin to maybe understand more of of how the Scripture begins to speak dignity into our our lives, our everyday lives. So, before we jump in, love if you pray with me, and then we're going to look at John chapter 1, but let's pray quickly. Lord, we thank you for this holiday, uh, as crazy as it can be, this time, this Advent time in which we wait, in which we look forward to something. It is a time in which we... um, It's not just simply cheerful, but it's a time of waiting because we look around the world and we see that there is um, a lot that is wrong and we long for more. But it is a time of celebration because with the birth of your son, there is something more. Lord, as we look at the Gospel of John tonight, will you take the words that you inspired him to to write down and, and bring them alive in our hearts tonight by that same Holy Spirit? We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you do have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 1. And I encourage you to bring your Bibles. Uh, you can write in them, take notes in them, but if you have your Bibles, it's a great way to follow along with what I'm doing. We don't always put everything up on the PowerPoint, so I want you to be able to follow along. We are going to look at just a couple of verses tonight because there is a tremendous amount that is said in the prologue of John, which is simply saying the, the opening kind of salvo of John, as he begins his account on who Jesus is, there's a tremendous amount that is said, both about the nature of God, but also about the created order, including us. So as we go along and we look at the sense of, what is it? What is it? What is this dignity that is given to us, that is affirmed in us, in us and in all of humanity that we get in this time of Advent, that we see in John. Well, we're going to 
what I want to do is I want to prove it to you. I want to kind of go in the vein of our beloved pastor emeritus, Earl, as he would say, hey, I want to prove it to you. Right? I'm no Ryan Church, but I love that sense of Earl. It just, he, he would open up something and say, here, I'm going to prove it to you. And in John chapter 1, we're going to get that sense that God is going to prove to us, he's going to demonstrate very clearly to us the dignity of our lives. So first of all, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. We read this, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him was, uh, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. Well, it's kind of a strange way to begin sort of the opening to a gospel. I mean, we don't even read the name of Jesus actually for, for several paragraphs. We're interested, introduced to this strange character called the Word. We read that the word somehow is distinct. It's not just kind of this abstract idea. It somehow seems to have a person, the word. It, it was, we read that it was with God. It was there at the beginning that all of creation was created through it. It's not exactly God, and yet it was there, but it is God, and it's just wondering what's going on. What we don't immediately understand, kind of coming from our perspective, is what John is doing is actually brilliant. Because what he's doing is with this introduction of Jesus as the Word, and we'll, we'll soon see that Jesus is the Word, he's speaking to two different cultures at once. He's speaking both to the Hebrew culture and to a Greek culture, and he's brilliantly tying them together with this, with this one word, the Word, which is in the Greek is, is logos or logos, as you probably have heard. Well, what it does is it immediately sends us back. Right from verse 1, we are sent back into the very beginning of the scriptures, into, into Genesis, that we have to get the very, so that we get the full story. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in, in verse 1, we read this, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said... God spoke, let there be light. Now, throughout the very first chapter of Genesis, we have this refrain. And there's a couple of things that we hear again and again and again. We see, we hear again and again, God spoke, or God said. God said, let there be an expanse between the waters. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into its place and to dry ground. God said, God said, God said, God said. Well, if there's also something that is affirmed throughout the very first chapter, is again and again we read, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then God looks over everything that he has created, sits back and goes, what? Very good. Very good. Now, there's a number of things. We could spend lots of time in Genesis 1, but there's a number of things that John wants us to hear. He wants us to think about. He wants to speak to his Hebrew audience. And when he says, in the beginning was the word, he wants us to go back and remember. And there's a couple of things that are affirmed, even just in this first chapter that I want us to focus on tonight, that help us get this sense, this great affirmation of humanity in the created order. And it's this. Because it, three things I want to touch on. Three things that, that the Hebrews were trying to essentially say. There was a number of different accounts on how creation started. A number of things that they were interacting with. There's Three things they, at least, they wanted to say, kind of in response. The first is this, the, the creation doesn't equal God. God does not equal the creation. 
that fundamentally God is separate from the world. Not part of the world, not a sun or a moon. I mean, one of the dramatic things is that in all the, the accounts, all the ways in which different cultures tried to make sense of the world, there was always a sense that like the sun god and the moon, moon god all, always played a huge role. That you looked at these great bodies that we looked up at the sun and you gave it this divine status. Man, that, that somehow that God and creation are, are one. And yet they very clearly say, almost in a throwaway line, they go, yeah, and then, you know, amongst all the other stuff that God created, the sun and the moon. In that context, back in that day, that was a huge thing to just slight. God is different from creation. He is not connected to it. He is not, there's no demands that it has on him. The second is this, is that creation is not an accident or an afterthought. Some of the accounts that went, that went on, that were going on at this time, that they, that Genesis was in reaction to, simple, would say this, it would go along like, here's how the world started. Okay, there was a cosmic battle, and in that cosmic battle there were two great gods, slugging it out, boom, 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 boom. One of them loses, one of them dies, one of them bloats up. Guess what turns in, guess what happens from that bloated god, defeated god? Earth. The world is created out of a, of a god who has lost the cosmic battle, bloated up, and there, and there then earth comes out of that. There's a sense where that, that makes, you know, it kind of makes sense. They're, they're trying to look around the world and say, okay, how do I understand what is going on here? And they might look around, they see chaos and violence in the world, and so what they do is they say, well, okay, there's a sense in which perhaps the world was started in chaos, in violence, very distinctly. Genesis is saying the world was not created as an accident or an afterthought. Thirdly, creation is inherently good. That again and again we read that creation is good. Now this is going to hit specifically the Greeks later. But there is a sense that instead of the world being created in in violence and chaos, no, the creation is fundamentally good. It wasn't created by some sort of secondary deity. It was created by God and God himself. It wasn't kind of this sort of trickster God. It wasn't this God that kind of got kicked out of heaven. It was really a bad little God. (laughs) This bad little deity, this sort of secondary deity, it was created out of the living God. And so therefore the creation was not this kind of thing that was a mistake. It It was an accident. It was fundamentally wrong. Instead, Creation, including all of humanity, was created on purpose, is ordered, is good. The creative and ordering God also then goes on to call us to join him in the stewarding of this creation. He gives it to us and he says, I want you to to be co-creators with me. You're not the fundamental creator, but I want you to be co-creators with me. In fact, I want you to steward, I want you to, to order it. I want you to create with me, he calls us into that, that fundamentally, at the very beginning, the Hebrews affirm that the world, that you are good, and God created you that way. Well, to talk about Jesus, John wants us to remember what is going on in Genesis. If we're going to get any sense of what Jesus is about, what Jesus has come to restore, what Jesus has come to, to bring life to, we have to remember that the creation, created order was intentional and it was good, and we are called to be a part of its cultivation, of bringing out the very best in it. We need to remember this, especially when we get tempted to think that perhaps 
that perhaps this world in which I live with is fundamentally meaningless. That that perhaps what I do in the everyday isn't significant. That perhaps really what is really important is is the spiritual. Perhaps what is really important is just what happens sort of in church, not really what happens in my office, in my neighborhood. What we need to often, we so we hang out in the old or in the New Testament so often that what we need to remember is the creation mandate. And the creation mandate says this: that there is incredible dignity that is given to us as we are called to steward resources, as we are called to d- discover the world. It's all the stuff that we do Monday through Friday that we put our hands to, as we extend knowledge, as we teach, as we cultivate food, as we bring about as we bring about items that that help. That, that, that take the resources of this world and create something better for human life. Even as we engage in advertising. Okay? I know, one of the, let me give, just give a, a brief example. One of the things that often happens that's easy to do is that sometimes we beat up on advertising. Those bad advertisers. You know, they're always after your money. They're always after you. You know, that, that maybe that's not, maybe that's not a worthy place to live out your calling. Thankfully, that doesn't happen around here. I've heard that. Sometimes, you know, what, is, what are advertisers about? Are they just about greed? Well, not fundamentally. Advertising is simply communicating something. It's simply saying, there is something that you need to know about. I want to tell you about something. There's a product. There's something that can improve your life, and we're going to tell you about it. It's, just, it's communicating something. We advertise in a lot of ways about a lot of things all the time. We communicate. The thing that goes awry is that there is, sometimes we do it with less than perfect motives. Sometimes it... it is somehow denigrated, and we're going to get to that in a minute. I had a friend who was a, a graphic designer. He worked at a snowboard company. He was a graphic designer in charge of advertising, and, and I would often talk to him about, you know, what, what is it like? What, how does your faith kind of connect with what's going on here with, with, with what you do with the snowboard company? And he would, he would say, you know, one of the things that's most frustrating is he had he'd gone over to Europe, and he had met sort of the, the head, because it's, the the, uh, the corporate head was in Europe, and he had met the head of advertising. They were talking about campaigns, and essentially, this head of advertising over there was like, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. Really, our campaign's going to look like this. We're just going to get a couple of really hot-looking girls, maybe take their shirts off and throw a pair of boots on them. Right? That's what sells. That's that's what immediately captures attention. You know, it'll be some sort of scantily clad girl holding a pair of boots, wearing a pair of boots, throwing a pair of boots around, whatever. That's what we're going to do. And my friend was so frustrated by it. Not, there's a lot of things that are wrong with that. That's a lot of why the, the, sometimes the advertising industry rightly gets critiqued. It appeals to the lowest and sort of basis point of, of who we are. But fundamentally, even more, so, more than that, my friend was like, you know, the thing that drives me crazy is it's so unbelievably uncreative. So unbelievably uncreative. It's easy. It's low-hanging fruit. It doesn't engage the mind at all. I mean, we think about Super Bowl, right? Super Bowl. Sometimes some of us just watch. We don't even watch for the game. We don't care so much. We just want to see the advertisements, right? Because if you're going to pay millions of dollars for an advertisement on the Super Bowl, it's got to be good. And though the best advertisements are those that are hilarious, Right? They capture our attention. They do something in a unique way that makes us laugh, that makes us sit back, that makes us wonder, that surprises us. And whether or not we buy that particular product, there is a sense where we go, man, there, there is something unique. There is almost that divine spark we can see in the very best, the most creative ventures. 
Well, that is what God wants us to do. He has called us to be fundamentally creative. Well, the world also connects to the Greek mind. In the Greek, in the Greek mind, the logos, so the word, was that seen as the great ordering principle. It was a sense of all things rational. It was reason. And it was connected to the, it was connected to the divine. And in the Greek mind, the divine couldn't have anything to do with kind of this world. It couldn't have anything to do with the, the reality that we see here because this world is fundamentally corrupt and it was their way of understanding evil. Okay, you have kind of, in, in a sense, concepts and ideas that are out there. You have, you have the logos that is determining everything. But down here, man, things don't work exactly right. So there, there must be something fundamentally wrong with creation. Well, what we, that what we might affirm is that the created order is, is good, but we also recognize that there is a brokenness to it. I mean, we do look around. There is, some, there is futility that we run into all the time. As we engage in our work, we know that, that rationality doesn't rule the day, right? And people make irrational decisions all the time. Even when you do make rational decisions, even when kind of the best of scientific knowledge is used, it's not always used in a positive way. I mean, it could be used just as well to, to bring about great good as it can be to bring about great harm. And we've seen that throughout history, unfortunately. That the best and most rational minds the best thought of the day sometimes has been used to annihilate people. Perhaps you might have noticed as you grow up, I mean, I certainly did, you, you kind of engage into this adult world and the longer that you're in it, the longer you kind of go, man, it doesn't seem like it's that adult, it's that mature. I mean, you see people that are acting like they're just like they're on the playground, but they're sitting in the office. Man, it looks like things are downright messy. It's not good, it's not ordered, it's not purposeful. Well, the second point is this. As we move throughout John chapter 1, the second point is this, is that not only is there dignity that is given to our lives, that is affirmed by the intentionality and the inherent goodness in creation, but it's also the fact that when things went awry, that God considered it worth saving. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and has made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And to the great scandal of the Greek mind, the gospel affirms that this great ordering principle actually took on human form and became flesh, actually stepped down into the mess of life. That this world was considered worth saving. Well, you guys know I have a little boy named Noah. He... he uh, you know, gets into all kinds of trouble all the time, and most of it's fun. Well, one day, he, he used to grab all kinds of things. We're in this stage now with, with Caleb. I mean, he is grabbing everything, and we're just waiting for the time where we're going to take him to the hospital, right? I mean, he's about to jump off of stuff. We're always catching him about to jump off of things that he's just going to kill himself on. I mean, he's constant, he looks like he's been in a bar fight. I mean, right now, he's got scratch on this eye, bruise on this eye. I mean, he just he's a bruiser. Well, Noah was about this age, and he had grabbed our digital camera. It was a little... It, not big, but it was, it was kind of substantial and heavy. And he realized that there was a tether on it, so he was swinging it. At least this is how I put it back. I put it together later, right? He's swinging it around, and suddenly I hear this, boom, oh, boom! I come around the corner. The camera's laying on the ground. Noah's got this huge triangle in his head. I mean, it was awesome. I mean, I had sympathy for him, sort of. 
you know, but there's the camera. It's laid on the ground. That was the first of many times in which he dropped our digital camera on the ground. Poor Noah, swinging around, knocked himself clean out. Well, well what do you do? We finally turned in our camera because our, fi- our camera finally broke. It finally, you know, we actually coached it, coaxed it through about, about four or five years, so it was pretty good, but it finally just gave up. I got this error message that said, well, it needs to be sent in to the company. Well, what are you going to do? You have a four-year-old digital camera. What are you going to do? Are you going to send it into the company and pay someone $100 to, to look at it? No. You throw it away. Right? So often, so much of how we live life is when something breaks, we simply throw it away. And it might be that we'd even look on, we might even expect that God would look on this world when everything goes awry. And we know this just by living, that there is something fundamentally that is broken in the world while also affirming that there is great goodness in the world. We could imagine God just saying, eh, it's not worth it. But He comes instead. He comes after us and at great, great cost. Not at simply paying $100 for someone to look at it, but at the very cost of His life. In some ways you could say it would cost Him less to simply start over, but He doesn't. He affirms. He gives dignity to this created order, to you and to I, because He comes after us to rescue. Again, this sends us back into the Old Testament. We read that God made His dwelling among us, and we remember that there's this great story in which God's redemptive work... Whoa! God's redemptive work began early in Genesis, as He says, I'm going to reverse this horrible trend of sin that has begun to send cracks through humanity. And I'm going to begin with Abraham, and I'm going to call Abraham to be different... And then he goes on and he works through a family and the family is incredibly messy. And then he, he works through a whole nation and he calls this nation of slaves out of Israel. And it is God's very presence. God doesn't sit back and go, ah, they screwed it up. Forget them. He goes, man, I hear the cries of my people and I actually, I want to do something about this. I want to see this creation restored. And so he, he rescues them out of Israel. That's a great, or out of Egypt. That's a great story of Exodus and his presence is with them. And as he goes along, he actually has a tent, and his tent is right in the middle of this nation of slaves that barely knows how to organize themselves. And he says, I'm going to start here, and I'm going to begin with this now nation to begin to point to something new, to a redeemed humanity, to the kind of humanity that I intended. Well, we remember in the story of David, hopefully a few weeks ago, David wants to build a house. He wants to build a house for God. He goes, you know, God is important and He's big and He deserves a house of cedar. I'm in a house of cedar. And and so he says, God, here's the deal. I'm going to build it. And God goes, hey, that's great. Fine, thanks. It's not a bad idea. That'll happen soon. But who told you that I need a house? Who told you that I have to, to be in a house of gold and cedar? He says, oh, man, my the thing that I care about is I'm with my people. I'm, I've, been in the, I've been walking with them in a tent for a long time. And guess what I'm really interested in fundamentally? I'm interested in continuing this ongoing story of restoring humanity and restoring indeed all of creation because I want to make you into a house. That's what I'm interested in. I want to make you into the kind of king that demonstrates something different that begins to reverse the demonstration. Well, fundamentally, he goes even deeper and he says, the word became flesh. I love that word, flesh. You gotta say it with a lot, lot of, lot of shh. Flesh. The word became flesh. 
we're not didn't just take body but flesh and this idea of flesh is important because it's it captures the whole kind of of who we are as people it captures the whole of humanity it captures the vulnerability it captures the brokenness it captures the sin it captures the beauty it captures all of who we are the good the bad the ugly the word became flesh the word changed fundamentally this ordering principle this of all creation, the creator God became flesh, moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson would say, and took on all of who we are, the good, the bad, the ugly. If you were here on Sunday, George's sermon was a great example of talking about uh, what, what this enfleshment, that God works with flesh. He talked about some of the other Gospels. They begin the story of Jesus, not in this way, but with genealogies, looking at family histories. And he begins, he begins with Abraham. And, and Abraham is this great guy, but dude, he is messy. The guy might have stepped out on faith, but the guy also sold his wife twice. Right? Not once, twice. For his benefit. You go along and you, you really realize part of the genealogy is this gal named Tamar. And, and who's Tamar? Tamar had to prostitute herself out to her father-in-law because the family was so messed up. Flesh. You go along, you begin to look at some of the kings after David, and there's this king called Manasseh. Manasseh is, basically undoes everything good that his father had done. It so much wants to kind of lead and, and gain power that he ends up sacrificing his kids. He ends up burning his kids alive. Flesh. Can God work even here? Does he care to even redeem this? Yes. He does. That's the wonder of Advent. Who's seen The Office? Office? Office lovers? All right. You guys are good. I wasn't really sure, but I love The Office. Okay, there's something wonderful about The Office. It captures the same sense of Dilbert, but there's also this wonderful sense of kind of beauty in the midst of it. Well, so often what happens is What's so funny about it is not really even what is said, it's the looks, right? Those of you who know, I mean, there's the boss, Michael Scott, he's often saying stuff that is just absolutely ridiculous, right? Usually it's really inappropriate as well, right? I thought about playing some clips here and then I realized probably wouldn't go over so well. Maybe it wouldn't be the most edifying. I mean, the stuff he says, it's just like the, the show is amazing at making you feel really awkward in your own front room. It's just like... He steps into stuff that you just can't imagine. And usually all that people can do is they just they just look at the camera because it's like, what, what am I supposed to do? How do I even respond to that? It's amazing. You might be able to, you might be able to, to say that they look and they just say, hey, I can't even dignify that with a response. Right? Look at this word dignity. I can't even dignify that with a response. What am I supposed to say to that? It's amazing. Well, what does that mean if we want to push on the sense of dignity? I don't even want to spend time on it. So whatever you're saying is not worth my effort. Maybe you actually aren't even worth my effort. You're not even worth me paying attention. You're not even worth my consideration. Well, with what we experience in the world, we might be tempted to think that God would look upon it and say, I'm not even going to dignify that with a response. And yet what he says profoundly is that I'm going to give you my attention, my full attention, that we are worthy of his attention. We see it both in the creating of the world, not by accident, not by a mistake, not by something that happened by 
some lesser God, not by a great violence and chaos, but by intention, and also by saying that you are worthy of my going after and restoring. You are worthy of my attention. Eugene Peterson, as I've said, translates this as God moves into our neighborhood and declaring that our place, that who we are is worthy of our attention. That your neighborhood is worthy of my attention. That your apartment buildings and the jokers that live next door or the neighbors that live down the street that drive you crazy, they're worthy of my attention. That your cubicle, your office, your lab, your shop, your classroom is worthy of my attention. That your life that is seemingly successful or maybe for some of you feel like you feel, it seems unsuccessful to you. It is worthy of my full attention. That your job or your lack of a job has my full attention. That your life of great blessing in which everything seems to have gone right or your life of great tragedy in which everything seems to have gone wrong is has my full attention. And why does it have my full attention? Because it profoundly matters to me. Seattle, where you live, profoundly matters to me. And it matters to me because I want to show my glory. I want to show my glory in the very places in which you live. Not just in a temple, but in your neighborhood. And by glory, I mean this, because glory is kind of a, it's one of those words that's sometimes inaccessible. Glory is simply this. I want to show my wonder and I want to demonstrate my authority in the places that you are tempted to think are beyond the dignity of my response. And here's the thing. I don't just want to show my glory where you're at, but I want you to be a part of it. I want you to be a part of the demonstration of surprise and wonder and authority that created all things by good intention. And I want to do it by what you do, but fundamentally I want to do it through who you are. Now, dignity is a sense that we don't like to talk about it, maybe because we don't want to seem pretentious, we don't want to seem arrogant, maybe because we're tempted to think that we don't want to raise the bar too high on ourselves, maybe because we're apathetic. I don't know. You'll have to answer that question for yourself. But true dignity is one that goes beyond simply what we do into who we are. It's the dignity that that takes a a poor man, a servant, who acts like a king. It is a king who, who is able to step beyond his own title and authority and act like a servant. It is this dignity in which we know who we are in which we respond to this high view, this great yes that God has given to us and the places in which we live and work, in which we say we respond to that great voice, the great word. We respond yes back. We read in John that we that all who receive the name He has given those to, to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, but born of God, that we take on an identity, that we affirm God's view of the universe, that there is more, that we don't shoot down, we shoot up. That we simply respond to that fundamental yes with a yes ourselves. Well, as we take on that identity, and that identity means a lot. Sometimes we think identity, perhaps maybe maybe that's kind of a fluffy thing. It's about what we do. 
And yet if you were at the retreat, you'll, you'll heard Mike talk about how he works with those who are in the jails. And a lot of those happen to be a Hispanic community who are in the jails. And one of the things that they have to do is to begin to get them to, to think about themselves differently. Because when they think about themselves, they think that they're just garbage. And so their actions flow out of that. Jesus says, you are fundamentally worth everything to me. And I want you to live out of that as my child. And I want you to take on my character. And the character of the word is this, that it comes in both grace and truth. That throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the word of God acts to reveal and to create. We see the creating in Genesis and then the revealing throughout Scripture to create and to reveal. To reveal what is true and false. What is real and not real. What is beautiful and what is truly ugly. What leads to life and what leads down to destruction. God has called us to take on that character in everything we do. To hold both the revealing and then the creating. The grace, the, the, the great gift love of God that always opens up something new. That always demonstrates some new way forward that is always creating new opportunity, that is always creating new hope. We hold those things together. We don't shy away. We don't look at the world with a Pollyanna kind of rosy glasses, but we say, no, it is both broken and glorious at the same time. And we're going to create ways forward for its great glory to come out. Well, the word moved into the neighborhood. And as you read the rest of the Christmas stories, and I hope you do in this time, You read that even in a a cave full of animals, even in a feeding trough, even with a bunch of kind of shepherds who were the lowest of the low, who were a bunch of low-wage, uneducated folks, that those were worthy places for God to demonstrate His glory, to show His wonder, to show His authority, that those places, that cave full of animals, was worthy of dignity. And if that's true, then He certainly is willing to take on and is interested in the barnyards that we sometimes find ourselves in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You um, that You have come, that You have considered our lives places of great dignity, that You have called us into the great creating and stewarding of who we are and our actions in our places of work each day, but You have also called us into redeeming to take on your character, to to bring out the very best in the world around us, to join you. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to what it is that you have in front of us. Lord, to believe that there can be something more, to not shoot low, to not expect the least from ourselves and the world around us, but to seek the very best. Lord, may we affirm this Christmas that what you are fundamentally about is life. Pray this in your name. Amen.